Welcome to the NFL Roadshow on the Wednesday of week 16, a holiday weekend with four days worth of games. This week, Saturday is going to operate as the biggest day of the week, and Sunday is going to get the special holiday treatment with one nationally televised game in every window. Uh, But again, Saturday will be the main slate, the day you get your red zone fix or fantasy zone, wink, wink, channel 704, join us. Super fun. Um, But adjust your calendars accordingly because, of course, Sunday is Christmas. Big news of the week from an NFL standpoint, will Jalen Hurts be playing in that Eagles-Cowboys game? So he sprained his shoulder in last week's game, apparently, in the fourth quarter, played through the injury, even completed a 68-yard pass to A.J. Brown. You wouldn't have known he was hurt from watching him in the game. But now that we do know that he is hurt, his status is going to be a big storyline this week. Will it be him or will it be Gardner Minshew in Dallas? Nick Sirianni says that he's not ruling Hurts out, and certainly it would be very nice to have him in a game against Dallas where the Eagles can lock up the division and the one seed with a win. If they did that, they could potentially rest Hurts then for two weeks with nothing left to be decided, though perhaps it makes more sense to rest him now, make sure he gets healthy, and take advantage of the fact that they do have some cushion in terms of playoff positioning, and this week's game, although important against a rival, really isn't do or die for them. It does appear that Vegas is expecting the latter to be their approach. The line and total points changed dramatically on Monday, around the time that the news of Hertz's injury came out. Eagles went from being one-and-a-half-point dogs, which frankly I found surprising at the outset, to six-point dogs after the news came out. The point total also moved quite a bit from 51, the highest total of the week, to 46 Also, the movement in the MVP race, where Hertz was the favorite at minus 145 on Caesars' uh, pre-injury announcement, and Mahomes was in second at plus 170. Three minutes before the news of the injury broke, the odds shifted to minus 200 for Mahomes and plus 325 for Hertz. According to Max Meyer from Caesars, in the two hours prior to the news breaking, 23 bets of $1,000 or more came in for Mahomes at the Caesar Sportsbook, which is obviously very interesting. Um, I got to tell you, I kind of think that Mahomes should win the award anyway. I think Hertz is having an insane season and that he's definitely answered all the questions that we had about him going into the year and should be celebrated fully. But I think the best player and most valuable to his team this year has been Patrick Mahomes, who is statistically speaking, having a great season better than Hurts, nearly across the board in almost any category you could pick. But narratively speaking, I think that we're underselling what he's done this year. Uh, Remember in the offseason, the whole conversation was about his lack of wide receivers. They got rid of Tyreek Hill, you guys, because they could. Because they didn't have to pay a guy of his talent level because Mahomes is so good that he can get shit done with people who are not in that upper echelon of talent. And yes, he does have Kelsey, and I'm not discounting that. But I think that what is happening here is that we're kind of waiting the new thing that's exciting and failing to reward the thing that is consistently outstanding just because we expect him to be outstanding. Like Tom Brady, who's been the MVP three times in his career and who has absolutely been the best player in the league more than three times. Nolan Ryan in baseball has more strikeouts than anyone else. He has seven no-hitters. He is generally regarded as one of the best pitchers ever, played for nearly 30 years, and not in one of those years won the Cy Young Award. 
I think we tend to overcomplicate things a little bit when it comes to these types of awards. So while I would very much like to see Hertz on the field uh, with a chance to finish strong and fight to win the award, my vote as of right now would go to Mahomes, barring something crazy happening anyway. But I'm curious to see what my guest today thinks as someone who maybe didn't always get his full due as a guy who was crushing it because he was on a team that was not. That said, we all obviously noticed the play of Joe Thomas. Hard not to when he was always on the field, played a record 10,363 consecutive snaps, went to 10 Pro Bowls in 11 years, and was a first-team All-Pro guy six times. His resume is bonkers. He is a Hall of Fame semifinalist this year, and we'll find out in January if he's a finalist. Spoiler alert, he will be. And then he'll find out the day before the Super Bowl if he is in this year's class. He will be. I wonder if he hates it when people talk like that. I know it makes some of the guys that are in this position really nervous. So let's see if he's one of them. It's time to break the huddle. Hello, let's go! Two on two on two. Ready? Joe! Hello. Hello, hello. So I was just rambling on about your inevitable Hall of Fame selection in the right. intro. And I'm wondering if you hate it when people talk about that, if it makes you nervous or are you like, yeah, that's me going yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's weird. Uh, ever since my career, I've been really good at kind of putting things into two boxes, like either something I have control over or something I don't have control over. And I've been really good at just letting go of stuff that I don't have control over. I think that was the benefit of being part of so many losing teams like, hey. <laughs> I'm doing what I can. I'm going to focus on to me laugh. and whatever happens, happens. And I think the hall of fame kind of follows in that same line because it's like, Hey, five years ago, I stopped playing and I did everything I could. And at this point, if I make it great, I feel like I got a good chance and probably will make it either this year or next year. Um, but I don't mind talking about, it. I know there's guys that are like superstitious about that, but I was never a superstitious guy. Um, so it's uh it's not not a bad thing. I like I like talking about it. And when things finally happen, it'll be more fun because you of course have your family that's like, what's gonna happen? And I'm like, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. Like when it time comes to start planning and figuring that stuff out, we'll do it. But as of right now, I'm just enjoying the football season and Christmas coming up and a couple big ham and uh mashed potatoes, maybe some squash, maybe some beef tenderloin meals, and uh life is good. Is is that the Christmas menu every year? That'll be the Christmas menu. We we always usually do some like uh, pasta for the kids. So we'll probably do like a carbonara or like Alfredo. <laughs> they get, they like get out. They get out of like the yeah. regular Christmas. I feel like this is like the one meal a year that growing up they were like, eat this. Yeah. You don't get yeah, a kid's it, menu now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the adults do enjoy some fettuccine Alfredo every now and then too. So um, we'll, we'll let it slide. So, um, I, I want to ask you, I've got a ton of questions for mm -hmm. you about offensive mm -hmm. line play. Yeah. Um, not because obviously, you know, that's the only thing you can talk about. I know you could talk about anything, mm -hmm. but there are very few people that I can reach out to mm -hmm. um, who can talk about offensive mm -hmm. line play. And I want to make sure that we're um, awesome. giving the guys in the trenches some love. But Super. before I get to that, um, the big news of the week, I want to get your thoughts on Jalen Hurts. Mm -hmm. They're not mm -hmm. ruling him out. Does it feel risky to play him? I would say that. If I were the Eagles, I wouldn't play them right now because you've got the playoffs locked up. Obviously, you want to go into the playoffs with great momentum, playing well, being at your best, like all the teams do, right? But at the same time, you've got a quarterback that you rely on his legs a lot. I mean, that's kind of what's made him special and this team special this season. 
is his ability to kind of run a lot of those RPOs, those zone reads, those times where they spread them out and then they just give him the ability to run the football and be a running back. And I don't think you want to lose that by playing him too soon and going into the playoffs with a banged up quarterback. And you've got a team that's perfectly suited to play very well with Gardner Minshew. Like Gardner's a really pretty capable backup quarterback. I mean, for a while, we we almost thought that maybe he was going to find a way to be a starter for somebody. So you've got a quarterback that can play really, really well in his absence. You've got great offensive and defensive lines, which when you have good line play, you can kind of match up well and keep games close with just about anybody. And so I think you really want to be careful putting Jalen Hurts out there before he's completely ready, especially with the playoffs right around the corner. Especially with the cushion that they have. I mean, they're, we're talking yeah. about wrapping up the one seed this week. <laughs> like that gives you three yeah. shots to wrap up the one mm-hmm. seed, right? Right. Like they're even even if you don't have Jalen Hurts, like what are the odds that they're going to drop all of those games? You're not the one who hurt him, by the way. I know Joe Thomas had a had a pretty good game <laughs> against the Eagles last week. Yes. Yeah, it was funny. Um, there was some website that uh, put the Joe Thomas stats up there. Cause obviously he had a big game. He had like a sack and stuff. And then they used my, my headshot, my mug shot. <laughs> and so I, I, you know, I had to play and have some fun with that on my Twitter account, talking about my transition to defense and uh, definitely something that I enjoy that uh, I've got a very generic name and there's plenty of Joe Thomas's out there, including some that are still in the NFL that uh, I can ride their coattails on a little bit. What is it with you and NFL graphics? They just can't get them right. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, I'll, I'll never forget. <laughs> a lot of people in Cleveland, they even made a T-shirt out of the one where it said Joe Thomas, first offensive lineman in NFL history. And they uh, they did a T-shirt <laughs> with me with that graphic. And then they kind of drew it up like I was a player from like the 30s with like a leather helmet. And uh, it was it was kind of fun. So I appreciate whenever they screw up my name or uh, my likeness. I I need that T-shirt. <laughs> Lane, Lane Johnson um, this past week set a record for consecutive pass plays without a sack. You're mm. a connoisseur of offensive yeah. line um, <laughs> records. 27 games, 27 Amazing. games, right? Incredible. What's, what, do you know what your personal best is? You know, I don't category? even know what it would be because giving up sacks is very uh, subjective based on who's watching. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, what the quarterback's doing. Like if the quarterback drops back and you get beat right away, you throw a no hitter and the guy sacks the quarterback. Okay. We get it. You gave up the sack, but you know, if you're just a little bit edgy, kind of have your guy and the quarterback starts scrambling and maybe he falls off and get a sack. Like, do you give that to the lineman? Do you give that to the quarterback? Is it just uh bad luck based on the circumstances and the coverage down the field? So um, I don't even really know how many games would be my best stretch without giving up a sack. I, the numbers that I have in front of me are, um, not in terms of, um, consecutive plays, uh, but 6,680 pass block attempts in your career and 30 mm. sacks allowed. So that's a pretty good ratio of spreading them out. I would imagine. Yeah. I got to um, feel like there's somebody that's gone through them all and tried to break it down. Probably PFF where, you know, they're 100%. distributing sacks who, you know, who's responsible for what and. They probably have a nice little spread through there, but I also remember playing for a lot of different quarterbacks that some of them didn't really know what the offensive scheme was that we were asking him to do. So we did take a lot of sacks throughout my career. So I'm, I'm surprised that number is not even higher about the number of sacks that I've allowed in my career. They knew where to give the blame. That's right. How many, <laughs> yeah. how many holding penalties? You didn't have that many holding penalties. Do you know that number off the top of your head? No, I feel like my average, I, I was giving up or getting 
probably two or three holding penalties a year, uh, somewhere in there. Uh, of course, I never agreed with any of them. Right. Uh, they, they were all bad calls. Um, but uh, yeah, there was definitely only a handful where I can remember where I was really holding the guy and it was really bad. A lot of times, you know, you kind of get locked up with a guy and maybe he makes a second move and you try to readjust and then the quarterback moves and leaves the pocket and then you get dinged for one like that. Um, but not too many where I just got beat and I just bear hugged the guy and was trying to save uh, a no hitter on the quarterback. Did they give you the benefit of the doubt in that department or did you really not hold? Uh, you're asking the wrong guy. Like I said, at the, come on, Joe, nobody's ago, who, cares? No, who cares now. Yeah. Right. It's all over now. Like easy um, O'Hara. I'm not holding on that play in the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, like I said, um, you're always trying to convince the ref that it was a bad call. So in the moment, <laughs> maybe the next time he sees something that's close, he's, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I probably called one that was close. So I'm going to maybe swallow the whistle in this play and not throw the flag. Uh, so it's always a back it and forth. Yeah, it's always a back <laughs> and forth, especially early on in my career. Uh, one of the officials was actually behind the defensive line, you know, back in the day, like they still have in college. So there's only one official that was behind you. And he was the guy with uh, the white hat. He was the guy that got all the publicity when he was on the PA announcer. And so typically you kind of got to know those guys because it was the same guys that you you had throughout the season. And so you try to build a relationship with them. So when you're pushing them, you don't want to be too hard on them, but you also want to let them know, you know, I think you missed that one. You may want to go back after the game and watch that because I think you were wrong there and try to build that good rapport and try to get maybe a little so, uh, subconscious bias working in your favor as the season wears on and as your relationship builds with those officials. What do you think of Tyron Smith playing on the right side? On Sunday. That was amazing to me because there was times throughout my career, especially towards the end, um, my left knee got really bad. And that's actually why I retired. And it was because when you're playing left tackle, you really put that left leg far underneath your body. And so the outside of my knee like took an unnecessary beating because I was always playing left tackle. And one of the things that people said when I retired was, hey, why don't you just flip to the other side because your right knee's fine. And then your left knee wouldn't be in that weird angle that kind of irritates it. And so you'd be able to maybe continue your career playing right tackle. But I remember trying to play right tackle a few times in the Pro Bowl because typically in the Pro Bowl back in the day when they used to actually have a game, they would put in three left tackles. So somebody had to go out and play right on the right side. And if you didn't have a rookie or a first time pro bowler, a lot of times it was three veteran left tackles. And so you kind of just drew straws or you'd just kind of rotate and have to play on the right side. And I was never able to make that transition. So I give him a ton of credit because everything is backwards. It's not yeah. as bad as throwing with your other hand, but literally the leg that you push and the, the leg that you pull with becomes very specifically ingrained in your head and you got to do the opposite. And so now all of a sudden where you're putting your balance in those moments of, you know, uh, critical positioning where it's like, okay, this is either a sack or you make your block and you're able to push the guy past the quarterback. You got to know exactly like your hand placement and where your balance goes and how you're trying to move the defender away from the quarterback. And it's all backwards in your head. And so I think it takes a long time to kind of pick that up. And so for Tyron to be, first of all, out for most of the season and rusty as it is at baseline and then having to go over to the right side. That was really amazing. I mean, I thought he played really well, especially considering all the circumstances. And I don't know when the last time he's even taken a set at right tackle, maybe right. the pro bowl. Yeah, it was fun seeing him on the same side as Zach Martin for a little yeah. bit, right. Absolutely. Being able to play together. Um, 
when, do you think that that's an easier transition to make earlier in your career for all the reasons that you just said? I mean, it is backwards, but maybe it's less ingrained and less like, mm-hmm. you know, um, what's that called when it just like happens? Just like muscle memory, <laughs> muscle memory. Maybe it's less yeah. mom. I mean, it obviously still is because you've been playing yeah. in high school or college or whatever. So mm-hmm. you've been playing for a long time in most cases. But when you talk about guys that are coming out in a draft and the, oh, we'll just put them on the right side. You know, do you think that that's specific to the person or do you think that that's something that most people at that stage can probably flip? Yeah, I think if you do it early on in your career, it's a lot easier. Uh, for me, I started out as a left tackle for my first day at Wisconsin as a freshman. So everything had been ingrained in my head on the left side, my whole career and flipping early on. I think it would have been okay. It probably would have taken me three or four months to get the hang of it, to feel like I, I was natural on that side, but doing it later on in your career is like almost impossible. Because if you think about it, like a fresh powdery, uh, ski, ski run, right. Mm -hmm. You've got the same thing in your brain, just constantly going down that same path. And all of a sudden you you dig these really, really steep ruts. And to try to change that, you need like a total rewiring and reset in your brain to be able to go over there and do it. And I I think early on, it's easy because you're just not as ingrained in your brain with that process, with the balance, with your hands and your footwork. And so it's easier to make that flip. Um, But I think later on, it it becomes really difficult because you got to erase all that muscle memory that's been built up through the years. And I think the longer it builds up, the harder and the longer it takes to rewire yourself and to be able to make that flip. Penny Sewell's playing on the right side, right? He is. Yeah. So he's one of those guys that's Mm -hmm. kind of made that flip and it's worked out. Did you set play? Was it two weeks ago when they lined him up out wide? Yeah. Where he came in motion. Offensive lineman's dream. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. It reminded me a little bit of what the 49ers have done with Trent Williams at times where they're kind of getting him off the ball and putting him in motion. And I I think it provides a real big advantage because for the defense, first of all, they're seeing this gigantic dude, you know, 6'5", 330 pounds, who's fast. So he's building up a lot of momentum. He's building up a lot of speed. And those guys are getting Don't real come nervous. this way. <laughs> Don't come this way. He's going to kill me, right? Because all of a sudden a guy who's used to kind of playing with control when you start to let him run, he's building up that speed and he doesn't have to worry about control as much because you're saying, Hey, this is your spot. Go be a runaway locomotive and just run through that spot. And so those guys on defense are really nervous because you're usually kind of expecting some type of run play coming behind them. So it was kind of cool and creative for the lions to put Panay Sewell in motion and let him build up that head of steam. Now the defense is thinking, don't come over here and kill me. Or what do I do to avoid him to try to make a play on the run? And all of a sudden, boop, they pull the ball and it becomes a little pass in the flat. And so you kind of have that element of surprise that's built into it on top of the fear that the defense has to deal with. Yeah. And you get a nice little play and he made a nice little move at the end, got the, got the first down, got out, got excited. And there was definitely a lot of offensive linemen throughout the country that were smiling after watching that. That O-line's playing really well this year. Yeah, like I, I don't know that a lot of people are... I think the the Lions are in the last couple of weeks becoming a team that people are now like, oh, maybe this is actually happening there. You know, there's like a couple of cute wins mm-hmm. in the beginning of this stretch where people are like, oh, they're beating people, whatever. But the defense is still bad. And it takes a little while for the narrative of like the defense isn't actually still bad anymore to yeah. catch up to people. Um, but I think that the O-line play there is something that just because people don't talk about O-line play in general is maybe going a little bit unrecognized. 
Yeah, I totally agree. Shout out to my guy, Hank Fraley, my former teammate in Cleveland. He was my center, played a little bit of guard when we drafted Alex Mack. Um, still a good friend of mine. He's their offensive line coach. He does a great job. He was one of the smartest players that I played with. And a lot of times you get guys that are center guards who've never played out a tackle. They can struggle to kind of relate because it really is very, very different positions from a technique standpoint. But I think Hank's done a great job teaching all of those guys. He's done a really good job absorbing the information and understanding the technique and being able to communicate and teach it to those young guys at tackle, because that's an offensive line that's playing really well together and they understand who they are. And those guys are really, really fundamentally sound, which I think be able to have sustained success, especially at the end of the season when you're not getting as much practice time during the individual portion, you're not able to just hammer home the fundamentals, you're getting injuries. So maybe the line isn't the same five starters as it was at the beginning of the season to see those guys playing their best football. Now on that line is a real Testament to obviously the, the guys that are out there playing, but then the coaches to be able to coach them up and to make sure that those techniques are still being ingrained in their head. Those fundamentals are still there, even though they don't get to practice it as much as you do towards the beginning of the season. That's an interesting point about the techniques being so different at tackle. And then the interior offensive line, because that's another thing that you hear come draft time where you're like, "Eh, maybe he's a guard, maybe he's a tackle. Like when you hear that kind of stuff, what do you think? Well, there's certainly different skill sets that are required on the inside versus the outside, because when you're talking about a tackle, you're talking about a guy that has to play in more space more often, because when you're playing guard, you always have either uh, you know, a center or a tackle that you're working with. Typically, there's not as many one-on-ones. And even when you do have a one-on-one, you kind of got those bumper bowling blow up things that go in the gutter. Like if you've ever gone bumper bowling, because you've got a center that's going to give you body presence. Uh, and then you got a tackle that's going to give you some type of body presence. So those one-on-one situations, your defender can only go so far in either direction. So he's got to play a lot tighter. It's space. That's why you see the bigger off- offensive guards or the bigger people that typically migrate to those center guard positions because they don't have to move as far. They don't have to be as agile or as athletic because eventually those defensive linemen are going to have to square you up and it becomes a wrestling match. Whereas that tackle, you're going to see guys that are you know, like a Mario Williams, 6'6", 300 pounds. So you got to be big and strong. But then you're also going to see guys like Von Miller, who's what, like 6'3", 230 maybe, who's going to yeah. try to beat you with his 4'5 speed around the edge. So you got to have a body and you got to have a physical skill set to be able to keep up with those little guys and play in sometimes in space where there's nobody around. They can choose to go into the B-gap to the inside. They can choose to try to rush around the outside and beat you. And there's nobody there. So you got to be able to really kind of transition from playing basketball in some cases to turning it into a wrestling match based upon who they put across from you in any given situation. I'm curious your thoughts on how you've seen defensive bodies change since you came into the league to now. Well, that's an interesting thing because if you look back like the nineties, when teams were running the football a lot more, you had a lot more condensed formations. Um, you had a lot bigger defensive linemen. You had defenses, a lot more defenses that were fundamentally sound where they wanted to make sure that they're building the wall. We got a player in every gap. And then they wanted to make sure that you had your linebackers that could fill in certain gaps. And they weren't really given the freedom to put two guys in a gap or to leave gaps available and try to overload blitz in one direction or the other. So it kind of was much more about keeping the pocket passing quarterbacks in the pocket and trying to constrict the pocket. So it tilted more towards bigger defensive linemen. Think about guys like Reggie White, right? They just want to collapse the pocket, 
and be fundamentally sound. And then, you know, you get the Rex Ryans who came in when he was coaching the defense uh, in Baltimore, where he's like, okay, instead of having just these big dudes that we line them up in their gap and they play their gap and there's not a lot of stunning, there's not a lot of blitzing, there's not a lot of craziness going on. All of a sudden he was like, no, no, I would rather have a couple big guys inside, but then I want a bunch of outside linebackers, which one, it makes it difficult to identify for the offense who's blitzing at any given moment. So now you have communication issues that come to play. And then also if I've got a bunch of guys that are 6'3", 245, 250, 260 that can rush the passer, I can move them wherever I want based on matchup situations. And, oh, all, all of a sudden running the football isn't as important. It's more about stopping these prolific quarterbacks. So we're willing to take more chances in the pass game where, hey, I'm willing to overload blitz to one side and I'll leave these guys over there where there's nobody covering these gaps because if they run the ball for four or five yards, hey, it's okay, we'll live to fight another day. But if we're able to get a big play, like a sack fumble, a turnover, just really impact the game from the defensive side, that can change the game in a huge way. And that was something that you really didn't see defenses do all that much. So all of a sudden now the defenses in the NFL started migrating towards more of those hybrid type outside linebacker guys. Well, when that happened, now all of a sudden the tackles, now you need to have a more athletic tackle because they got to be able to handle these 6'3", 240-pound speedsters on the edge. So then all of a sudden you get your offensive tackles and your linemen becoming skinnier, better athletes. Well, then what does the defense do? Okay, we got these, these guys that, first of all, on offense, we have to line up and put our hands in the ground, and then the defense gets to choose where they want to line their guys up. So now you've got the defense saying, okay, if we've got a skinny guy at tackle, we're going to just go ahead and take our biggest dude and line him up over the top of him. We're going to try to steamroll him and see if he can handle the bull rush. And so I think it's been a fun like cat and mouse game to kind of watch yeah. the evolution of the sizes of the defensive linemen. And it's always the offense kind of following what the defense is doing and dictating to them because of the nature of the rules. Because defense, once we line up, we're stuck. Defense, they can move wherever they want to pick up the best matchups. Do you think we're at a pivot point in terms of like another overcorrection starting to happen? Like we're seeing some teams um, clearly more committed to running the ball this year than they have been for the last few years. And NFL live did a great segment where they broke down all the reasons for this and the lack of the space eaters on the line. And so, uh, if in terms of like where your mismatch is, it's, Hey, we can run on you with some degree of success because you're no longer built to stop that. Do you think that we're going to see that kind of turnaround? Yeah, I, I do think everything's cyclical a little bit, right? Because the NFL is a copycat league. So whatever works, everybody's going to try to migrate in that direction because typically what happens is, all right, this team wins the Super Bowl or this team's had a lot of success. Whatever their scheme is, everybody wants to copy it. And they start poaching all their assistants, right, to become head coaches or coordinators. And so what do they do? They just implement the same system. So then when you have 20 to 25 teams in the NFL kind of running the same stuff, it really benefits you to do the opposite, right? Just like if you're picking stocks, right? It's usually the best to be the contrarian and to be doing things that other people aren't doing against the cycle. And that's one thing that Bill Belichick was always really, really good at because players individually, their value is based on, you know, how many teams want them, right? Supply and demand. If everybody needs these outside linebackers that can rush the passer, they're going to bid it up, right? And then they're going to become really expensive. And then your old school defensive ends, Nobody wants them because they don't have space for them. So their value goes down. So Belichick had been great forever and ever in realizing where the inefficiencies were in the value of the defenders and just collecting those guys. 
uh, because they were cheaper and because he knew that if he was doing something different, it was going to put the offenses in a bind because one, they don't see them all that much. And then two, when, when you're going against these guys that they're able to put together a much more solid defensive roster because it doesn't cost them as much to spend a bunch of money on the big, sexy defensive end that maybe had 15 or 17 sacks, he'd rather have, instead of buying one guy, I'd rather have three guys that are pretty good and then have uh, like the weakest, the, the chain with the weakest link type philosophy. I'd rather have 11 guys that are good rather than eight guys that are great. And then three guys that stink because the offense is just going to find out where the guy that stinks is, or those two or three guys that stink. And then they're going to exploit it. They're going to just continue to spam you with the same type of concepts to try to defeat wherever your weakness is on defense. Who's the best offensive line in the NFL right now? Uh, it's the Eagles. When you look at what they do, they're good at everything, right? Their five starters are all above average. And at their key positions, center, tackle, they've got Pro Bowl type guys. Um, and then I also think that the scheme that they run with Jalen Hurts, the way they run the football with the zone reads and the RPOs, um, I think it really fits the size of the guys that they have because they got big dudes on that offensive line that lean on you all day long. And then when you have a quarterback that can run, it buys you an extra blocker. Because if you think about the typical concepts on offense, right? Back when you had the drop back quarterback, he'd turn around, hand the football off, and then just try to get out of the way. So basically it becomes 10 on 11. Well, now if the quarterback is running with the football or at least giving you the threat of running the football, now the defense has to assign one of their defenders to handling the quarterback. So now it's 10 on 10. So it gives you a blocking schematic advantage that you just didn't get if you got a quarterback that's a drop back passer that just turns around and hands it off. So I think you put all those factors together. That's a big reason why I think the Eagles have had such a tremendous season. And they can attack you. However, like it's it, they're, they're to me, they, they feel like they're rising to the top and it sort of is starting to feel more and more obvious. Like there've been a group of teams all year long that are kind of in that conversation more and more, I'm starting to feel like the Eagles are that team and anything can happen in the postseason. I'm not saying they're going to win the Super Bowl, but in terms of projecting like who's most likely to probably, mm -hmm. um, it's hard for me to find a real hole on the Eagles team. Do you see one? I don't. And I think that's why they're going to be a lot of people's Super Bowl favorites, because if you look at, let, let's say the Bengals from last year, they made this great Super Bowl run. Now they didn't win. They were close, but they made it there because they were really good all the way across the board. They had a very underrated defense that was good at doing everything. Like there was this nothing that you could, yeah, they're, yeah, it's basically the same defense. Like there's nothing that you can do on offense to really exploit a hole in that defense. And I think that's what you need to be able to get through the NFL playoffs because it's so much matchup based. I really throw the records out once you get to the playoffs. It's all right, what do we do well? What do you do poorly? And how can we try to exploit that? But if the floor is really high, especially on the defensive side, you're not going to ever get a situation where teams are going to come in on offense and be able to say, hey, they can't cover down the field. So we're just going to run dudes down the field all day. And as long as we can hold up in protection, we know we're going to get at least three or four or five opportunities at explosive plays. And that's going to blow the game wide open. And we're probably going to win in the end, as long as we don't make critical, huge mistakes. And the team like the Eagles, when they're really good at everything, I feel like they just match up very, very well against everybody. Now, I will say one thing. When you're an NFL general manager and you're putting together your team, a lot of teams, I think recently especially, have favored going 
and spending a lot of money on the quarterback because it gives you the ability to have sustained success because you can put 40, 50, 60 million into that spot. And you know, you're going to be really competitive every single year. And you've got a chance if your quarterback is hot in the playoffs to be able to make that run and win the Super Bowl. Whereas if you build a team that's just really balanced all across the board, kind of like the Eagles, it's hard to keep those guys together, right? Because as soon as you have success, everybody's going to want to poach your players and yeah. everybody smells better. That's come off of a Super Bowl winning team, right? I remember we, we signed Scott Fujita in Cleveland, uh, who had just come off the Super Bowl win with the New Orleans Saints. And he was a good player, but we had to pay a little bit extra, right? Because he had yep. just won a Super Bowl and everybody's got that Super Bowl deodorant on them as they hit free agency. And it becomes really difficult for those teams that have had a lot of success with a lot of good players to be able to keep them all together. And I think that's why a lot of teams have tried to build through offense because they're going to say, Hey, if we sign a left tackle, or if we find a left tackle, a quarterback, and then two good receivers, like we can be good forever. Whereas on defense, it's like, you've got to find 11 good players year in and year out, because as soon as you have those holes, offenses are going to take uh, such advantage of it. And they're going to try to beat you up wherever your weaknesses are. And it's hard to keep 11 good defensive players together for the long run. And I think it kind of depends like where you sit on all those philosophies and how you want to build your team. But probably more than anything, it's like, what are my options? You know, it's not, it's easy to say, Hey, I'd like to build a team with a franchise quarterback and two great receivers, but like, unless you find them in the draft, like those guys just don't grow on trees and they're not easy to get in free agency. Well, and even if you do get one in the draft, like the chargers, you're in a tough spot this coming year, right? Because it it felt in a lot of ways, like this was the year they needed to go make a run this year. And then obviously injuries kind of took that option away, or at least, I mean, maybe took it away. They're still in the mix. And so maybe they'll go on a run though. I did not like what I saw from them on Sunday against the Titans. Um, but they're a team that's probably going to have to pay Justin Herbert this off season. So it feels mm-hmm. like the window to get that inexpensive quarterback, you yeah. know, is even smaller and smaller. Cause after three years, you think you're, we talk about getting them for five years. You're not getting them for five years anymore. Once mm-hmm. they're isolated as like, that's obviously a guy, you know, Justin Herbert's probably not going to take the field next year unless he has a new deal. And now you talk about putting pieces around him and that becomes complicated. Absolutely. I mean, it's the, it's the catch 22 about drafting a quarterback high in the first round. Obviously you want him to have success and you want him to work out, but when he does, you got to pay him a lot of money. And then you have to have a lot of difficult conversations within the front office about, Hey, who are the guys we absolutely have to keep to build around Justin Herbert? And who are the guys we really love and we'd love to keep, but we just can't afford him anymore. Yeah. Um, getting back to the offensive line is Trent Williams, the best offensive lineman. In the NFL? He is. And he's yeah. been that way for a while. Um, very few guys throughout the history of the NFL have been his size with his athleticism, but also his brains and his attention to detail with his technique. Guys that are great athletes can get away with poor technique early on in their career because they're so good at recovering. There's, they have such great balance and quickness that even if their technique has some flaws, if they get a little bit out of position, they can recover. But as you get older, you got to maintain or improve your technique because you're not as good of an athlete as you get older to be able to recover the way you have to, or the way you could when you were younger. And so I think Trent is rare because he's maintained his athleticism and his power and his speed and his technique continues to improve as he gets older. I still can't believe that he left Washington the way that he did. 
right? Like that they had access. I mean, I can, I a hundred percent can believe that Washington let that happen, but it's just bonkers that he's so talented and Mm -hmm. that they had him right there. And then, uh, let him go. Who else fits into that same category? I mean, or maybe not the same category, but maybe the tear down from Trent Williams, who else is in that conversation? Um, well, I really like Lane Johnson. We mentioned him at yeah. the top of the podcast. He's a guy that's just very steady. And for me, I really value consistency on the offensive line because we're not scoring touchdowns. Like if you're a defensive end and and you're not great against the run and maybe sometimes you get beat up pretty good, but you're going to get two or three game-changing plays every game where you're getting sacks or TFLs or fumbles or whatever it looks like. Like that guy has a ton of value, but on the offensive line, consistency is the most important thing because you got to be able to allow the other guys around you to be able to make their plays. And so I think a guy that consistently makes his block every single play for 70 plays or whatever during a game, he brings the most value to his team because your team then can count on him and can call a game plan knowing that, hey, we can rely on this guy out there in a one-on-one situation because now we know we don't have to add blockers here and we can use some of those resources, whether they be blockers or guys that instead of chipping now can get out into the pass routes. And now we can flood the defense with five eligible receivers and get more spacing in our passing game. And so having that consistency on the offensive line, especially at the tackle position is so important for being able to run the scheme that the offensive coordinator wants to run. I don't know how you feel about PFF's grades. But uh, Laramie Tunsil is the highest graded pass blocker amongst, well, offensive linemen, not just mm-hmm. tackles. But um, is he somebody that maybe slips through the cracks in these conversations a little bit because he's on a team that we're not paying attention to? Absolutely. When you're on a bad team, as I can uh, vouch for. What, what, tell, tell us all about it, people, Joe. <laughs> yeah, people, they, they kind of forget about you a little bit, which, you know, it's understandable. I mean, there's not a lot of people that are talking about the Houston Texans, um, but I think that's one of the good things that PFF has brought to the NFL is they've able, they've given you the ability to kind of highlight and appreciate some of these guys that are having great performances on bad teams. Totally agree. Of the young guys who, who pops off the page at you the most, who's like that next generation guy or yeah. guys. Well, um, Christian Derisaw is a guy from the Vikings that I've got a chance to watch, you know, last Saturday when, when they played, um, the Colts, uh, and I've watched him a little bit throughout the season. He's been fantastic. Like for a young guy, his balance and his technique has been really impressive because, you know, you, you get talented guys that are athletes that get drafted high and play tackle and they play well, but they don't usually play consistent because they don't have the technique. And you're playing at a different level than you did in college. Like you can get away with a lot of stuff in college because you're just not playing against that many good players. But if you go through the NFL roster, like I remember every week we'd get the game plan. It's like, oh, another pro bowler playing over me at defensive end. Like, cause every team values pass rusher. And at least, especially when I was playing, most of those guys got put over the left tackle. And so week in and week out, you're going to get exposed at some point based on your weakness or your technique flaws that you have, because you're going to see all sorts of different body types and guys that do all sorts of different stuff. I think Derisaw has done a phenomenal job with his consistency because he's got a technique that is rarely seen for young guys. It was there a technique that you had trouble with specifically, like that gave you trouble from an edge rush standpoint, like the defender was there like a move or something, not even necessarily a guy though, maybe a guy that you were just like, I can't, I can't do that one, you know? Yeah. I would say 
early on in my career, um, I was a smaller offensive lineman coming into the NFL. I think it was like 305 or 310, um, 66. So I, I was kind of high cut, like more lean than most offensive tackles. And for me, it was a little bit challenging until I really had honed my technique to go against guys that were big and strong and fast, right? Like you think of the guys like DeMarcus Ware, who could set you up field with his speed, because as soon as you get speed, now I got to play faster. I got to play more on my toes, a little bit lighter. Uh, you know, you think about, you watch those cars that are racing in the salt flats in Utah, right? They're going so fast. They're almost taking off, right? Because as you go faster in one direction, you're, you don't have as much force going down into the ground. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm playing against a guy like DeMarcus Wares, I think early on in my career, I'm going so fast to keep up with his speed that now if he transitions to a bull rush, I have to quickly try to anchor and slow myself down and slow my momentum down. That's already going towards the quarterback. And it made it really difficult. Um, so I, I always struggled, at least in my own head, especially with those guys that were really fast that could quickly transition into a bull rush. As I got better with my technique, I was able to maybe maintain that speed, but also always be able to quickly anchor and then handle those guys that had really, really powerful bull rushes. Um, and that's one thing I think you see more than anything with young offensive linemen is they really struggle to handle the bull rush because the speed and the power at the NFL level is so much different. And it's just a different tier than what you see in college. From a defensive standpoint, who's an edge rusher? that we're not talking about that you, cool. you watch him and you're like, man, that guy's, that guy's tough. I mean, we obviously talk about Parsons and we talk about Garrett. We talk about both mm -hmm. of the Bosa's and Max Crosby. These are guys that I think get a, a lot of attention. You could argue mm -hmm. that maybe Max Crosby deserves more than he actually gets, yeah. but you know what I mean? There mm -hmm. are some guys out there like Alex Highsmith or Josh sweat, or, you know, there are some mm -hmm. guys that I think are not household names. Are there any that jump out at you that you think should be? I think a guy that is becoming a household name is from the Lions, Aiden Hutchinson. He was obviously a high pick, so people know who he is. I thought he should have been the first overall pick because he reminds me a lot of the Bosa brothers with his refined technique and his ability to get to the quarterback. And you pair that with the great effort that he plays with. I think he's a guy that's going to be a double-digit sack guy for the next decade in the NFL because he's able to understand leverage, almost like a wrestler. They always talk about wrestlers making the best defensive linemen because they can kind of feel the lean of the offensive lineman and they're able to use that against them. Uh, when you watch Aiden, he's got great hand usage, but then when he locks up with a guy, he's very good at figuring out where they are leaning. You know, if I'm kind of pressing on them, they're going to naturally have to lean back to counter my weight into them. And then to, to like quickly snatch him and use your hands to be able to flip your hips, get around. And then the key is if you want to be a guy, that's a big sack guy, you got to have that burst after you beat the tackle, right? And I think that's one thing that you see versus guys that get a lot of pressures, but don't get a lot of sacks versus a guy like Miles Garrett who can beat the block, but then he's able to get to that next gear in a split second and to be able to close the distance because the difference between a sack and maybe just a hit is like 0 0.05 tenths of, you know, of a second. And a lot of times that's like half a yard. And so that ability to re-accelerate after you beat the block is so crucial. Last question. What happened to the Tomahawk pod? Ooh, uh, Andrew Hawkins got too rich and too big to be able to continue <laughs> the Tomahawk pod. He's got that game pro era. That's just killing it right now with the virtual reality headsets. Um, so we, it's funny. We, we still talk all the time and I'm still really excited about maybe doing something with him in the future, 
But with as busy as both of our lives were this season, we just weren't able to make it work. But uh, next year, keep your head on a swivel. Right? I know. Always, always alert, alert. Yeah. If you guys have like a couple of down weeks, I'm sure people will just be like, hey, let's do a pod for two weeks. It's fine. Yeah. Um, where, Where can we see you next? on NFL network. You're not working this weekend. Thank God. You have a nice little Christmas break. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll be working the super bowl for NFL network. I'm doing their big events, um, combine draft, that type of stuff. Um, but I'm actually going to be doing the radio for Cowboys versus Titans the week after the super bowl, big Thursday night football battle, a lot of playoff implications. So it'll be my first time doing color on the radio. And I'm, I'm really excited about that because it's a different, definitely a different challenge than doing tv when everybody can see yeah. what's happening and you're kind of just breaking it down now i have to be the eyes of all the people that are listening on the radio and i'm, I'm really you, excited how do you prepare for that or how have you been like are you like talking in the car like trying to describe <laughs> things as you drive by like did yeah. they do that well it's it's a totally different gig totally different um i'm actually trying it out on my kids and it's funny because <laughs> they're, they're, they're like dad why are you being so weird you know it's like we're watching the football game and, or I'll be like talking to them about something. I'm like, Oh, Logan Thomas slides down the, the sledding hill with her left leg forward. And she skids to a halt at the bottom. And she's looking at me like, what are you talking about, dad? Oh, and a pile of snow puffs up in the air as she's covered with the powdery white stuff everywhere. So yeah, it's been kind of fun working on pretending like I'm describing something to somebody who can't see what's going on. Yes. Well, you're, I, I feel like just in this um, podcast, you've done, you've used several analogies like that, that I would imagine you're like, it's like the car on the salt flats. <laughs> there you, you go. Know? Yeah. So just pull, the, pull from that stuff. Yeah. The the one thing that's a benefit, I think of doing radio as a former offensive lineman or somebody who's had to just describe offensive line technique to people is that offensive line technique is way easier to show people. Right. But a lot of times I'm talking on the phone to somebody and they're asking me about, Hey, how do I do this better? Or we're maybe watching some film and I'm trying to describe and tell them, Hey, this is what I need you to do. I need you to turn your right foot just a little bit more towards the defender. I need you to take your knee and just kind of put it a little bit more over your toe and turn your left shoulder and roll it forward. Like those are all the things that I would have to use to to try to describe how to improve somebody's technique, or maybe what are the th- the weaknesses in a defensive lineman's technique? And I think that really will pay off, hopefully, when I do the radio. But I guess uh, Twitter will let me know differently, like it like it always does. Do you focus on the O line? Do you feel like you watch the game differently than most people do? Who I follow do. the ball. I we do. all follow the ball. Yeah, yeah. I think most people follow the ball. I have to tell myself to follow the ball a lot of times. So I've been doing (laughs) what happened. Yeah. Right. I've been doing the Browns uh, TV for their preseason with uh, Chris Rose and doing that. You I have to tell myself, all right, watch the safeties, watch the ball because I naturally just so focus on the offensive line and then the left tackle that a lot of times, especially if it's a passing play, like I'll, I'll watch what happened there, but then I'm like, Oh crap. Like, who caught the pass? And then I'll have to quickly try to watch the replay and see, all right, this guy lined up over here. Oh, this is what he did. Okay, this is the coverage. Okay, now I understood what happened in the back end. But um, so you can tell us all about how Wyatt Teller made oh, it happen. Oh, let me tell you. Let you me know? tell you. I can tell you how boring it was when that defensive end ran right into the left tackle and he blocked him for three seconds. Oh, you're the best. Happy holidays. Thank you so much for the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Happy holidays, Lindsay.
Good thing he's not at a game this week. There are some really cold ones. Our friend Field Yates, with whom I discussed my intolerance for sub-60 degree temperatures on Monday's podcast, tweeted out the Tuesday estimates for the feels-like temperatures at some of these games this weekend, and there are six that are supposed to be under 10 degrees at kickoff and four that are expected to have sub-zero temperatures. So good week to be watching from the couch. And then we can all turn on the radio and listen to Joe next Thursday night like we used to do here in L.A. when Dodgers games were nationally televised without Ben. Gotta listen to Ben. And by the way, it didn't even hit me when Joe was telling the story about practicing for play-by-play. His daughter's name is Logan, and obviously his last name is Thomas, and that's how he got Logan Thomas in his practice play-by-play. I literally thought for a second he was talking about the commander's tight end, and I was like, well, that's an interesting choice of all of the names anyway. That's not who he was talking about. <laughs> Big thanks to Joe for being here. And you can follow him on Twitter at JoeThomas73. As for the show, please subscribe. And then more episodes like this one will be there waiting for you in your podcast feed when you go there. We've got another episode coming up on Friday, the Fantasy 15, my favorite fantasy plays of the week. And I promise Matt Ryan will not be one of them ever again. Then on Monday, we'll be here breaking down the week 16 action with another great guest. I hope you'll join us for both of those shows, and I hope you have a wonderful holiday weekend. Big thanks to my producer, Andrew Emmer. He is outstanding. As always, the NFL Roadshow is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. See you again on Friday. Sirius XM Podcasts.